Yeah, that was beautiful. Thank you for using your talents for the Lord. Makes you proud, right, grandparents? Luke chapter 23 in your Bibles. Luke chapter 23 is where we'll be here. Chapter 23 and chapter 4 for the next few weeks. As we read about the life and ministry of Jesus in the Gospels, each one kind of having their different account, their different angle through which they portray the life of Christ, it seems that so much happened in such a short span of three years, about three years of his ministry. I mean, things were happening so quickly, so many things at the same time, it seems. He healed so many people. He made even more people angry. He traveled so many different places. He touched so many different lives. It seems like it almost can't all fit within about three and a half years, jam-packed with events. And yet, yet everything that Christ did in his lifetime was leading to the rush of events that happened in the last week of his life. That last week we often refer to as the Passion Week. And you think his life was crammed full, especially the three years of his ministry, the last week of his life was crammed full of all sorts of different things. Things happening so quickly around Jesus during that last week. He has his triumphal entrance into Jerusalem. There's another cleansing of the temple that he does. More teaching to his disciples and to others. More questions given to him to entrap him. The last supper with his disciples, the washing of the disciples' feet, the inauguration of the Lord's Supper, the intense prayers of Gethsemane, his betrayal by the kiss of Judas, and his arrest there in the garden, the subsequent midnight trials, the mocking, the beatings that he would endure at that time, the cries of the crowd, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate's capitulation to their demands and then the release of a murderer, Barabbas. All these events in the last days of Jesus lead us to where we find him in Luke chapter 23. If you would look at verse 26. Here's the king of the universe with this mock crown of thorns on his head, carrying his own cross to the place of his own execution. We're going to read an extended portion here, verses 26 down through verse number 49. Here's what's happening to Jesus. Now, as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed, the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know 
what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we, indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. Here in that portion of scripture, we see the events of the cross, as it were. And in all of these details of what happened at that, in those few hours, it's, it's easy to miss one small phrase that really has incredible significance, though it's just kind of seems like it's thrown in there. In verse 45, the last phrase of verse 45, it says, the veil of the temple was torn in two. The veil of the temple was torn in two. So Jesus is on the cross and he's uttered those, those famous words. We see it in the, uh, some of the other gospels where he says, it is finished. Meaning that, that the price of redemption had been paid. The sacrifice was complete. The work of the cross was accomplished. It was finished. The work that he, had, he had come to do. And then he says, as we see in verse 46, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he gave up the ghost. He died. And at this moment, verse 45 tells us that back at the temple, which was only, if you look at the geography of this, it was only a short distance away from where the cross was. And just this short distance away back at the temple, at the moment that Jesus died, there's this loud and probably somewhat eerie tearing noise as the curtain, that thick, heavy curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place was torn in two from top to bottom. Now it's easy, we read through all this and we kind of look over verse 45, the veil of the temple was torn in two and move on and maybe don't consider it much. But the tearing of that curtain is a vivid picture 
of what Christ's death on the cross accomplished for us. All that it means for us. But in order to understand this curtain, we have to ask a few questions here. What was the temple veil or this temple curtain? And so I brought a couple pictures with me here. Back in Exodus chapter 26, verses, in verse 31, Exodus 26, 31, God tells Moses to build the tabernacle. And he says, you're going to make a curtain. In verse 31, he says this, you shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. So God tells Moses to build the tabernacle and construct this large curtain made of blue, purple, scarlet thread and, and decorated with cherubim. Now that would have been true in the tabernacle, though at this time when Jesus died, it wasn't the tabernacle, it was the temple. There's another picture of the curtain, but it would have been very similar. There's the curtain. Very similar to what we see in Herod's temple as well, the veil would have separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. Now, the historian Josephus says this, that Herod's temple in this area was 40 cubits high, 40 cubits tall, which means that the curtain could have been up to about 60 feet tall. Jewish tradition tells us that this curtain was about four inches thick. We're talking about a massive piece of material, potentially. A massive piece of material. Now, so that's kind of the curtain. That's where it is. But what was the purpose of the curtain? What was its purpose? Well, back in Exodus chapter 26, verse 33, God tells Moses this, You shall hang the veil from the clasps. Then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. Don't miss this phrase. He says, the veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy place. It hung between the holy place where the priests would, op would operate daily and the most holy place where no one dared to enter. It was a divider. Why though? Why a divider? Because in the most holy place, that was the place where God's presence came to dwell on earth. And he did this after, after the exodus from Israel, or excuse me, from Egypt. God comes down to earth to meet with his people and his presence dwells in what's called the most holy place. Yet he said the holiness and the presence of God was so great that there had to be a divider, a, a wall of separation, as it were, between the presence of God and the sinfulness of man. That's really what the curtain was. It was meant to divide the presence of God from the sinfulness of man. Yet the story of this curtain really begins long before the curtain even existed. Because why do we need a divider? Why a separation between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man? The story of the curtain really begins back in the Garden of Eden. Would you take your Bibles and go to Genesis chapter 3? Genesis chapter 3.
If you remember at the end of chapter one, God looks at everything that he had made, which would include his work in chapter two, because chapter two is an explanation of day six. So when God looks at all that he has made, he says, behold, it was very good. It was perfect. The original creation was perfect, which would have included Adam and Eve. And in Adam and Eve's original creation, they were perfect and they had open and free access to God. They walked and they talked with God in perfect union. There was fellowship. There was harmony. No divider necessary, right? No separation between them and God. But we know in chapter 3 of Genesis that all that changed on one fateful day. When Adam and Eve eat of the one fruit tree, the one fruit tree, the only one that was forbidden from them, they ate from that. And it says by that act of rebellion, by that act of disobedience, sin entered the world and everything, and I mean everything, changed including man's relationship to God. Romans 5.12 says that by one man, Adam, sin entered the world and everything changed, including the relationship between God and people. You see, because of sin, mankind was no longer perfect, but God still was. Mankind is now corrupted by evil, yet God is holy. He's perfect. He has always been holy. He always will be holy. And, and the holiness of God, as we, as we sang earlier this morning, the holiness of God is really probably his most intrinsic attribute. And what it means is that he is so far removed and apart from sin. If this is sin, God is so far other than this. That's his holiness. He cannot tolerate sin. He cannot look on sin. You remember in Isaiah chapter six, where Isaiah has that vision of the throne room of God and the seraphim call out about God. He, they say, holy, holy, holy. You see a, a, a display of that again in book of Revelation chapter four says the creatures around the throne of God cry out and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. We sang that this morning. Holy, holy, holy Lord God almighty. He is holy. He is so far different and apart from sin. And in Genesis chapter three, would you look at verse number 23 and 24? It says, after Adam and Eve have sinned, Verse 23, it says, Therefore the Lord God sent him, talking about Adam and Eve, out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So because of man's sin, God removes Adam and Eve from the garden and he places angels and a flaming sword there to secure the garden. Why? So they couldn't return. There was a division between the holiness of God, the presence of God, and the sinfulness of man. There's three headings 
today that we want to talk about, and that is access denied. Access denied because of sin. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. Mankind is denied access from God. So is there any hope? Is there any hope at all? Right before God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden, he gives them hope. But it's in a strange way. We're talking about a curtain or a veil today. This is a a veiled hope. Look at chapter 3, verse 15. He gives this veiled promise of hope within the curse that he gives to the serpent and Satan. Genesis 3.15, I will put, and talking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. When you read that, it's like, eh, I don't quite understand that. That's so why I said it's this, it's this veiled promise of something that was to come. And what it is, is this. Someone will come from the seed of the woman who will eventually crush Satan's head. You say, well, what does that mean? When does that happen? How will that happen? Well, nobody here at this point knew. We get the benefit of looking back. But if they trusted the promises of God, they might not have known how it was going to happen, but what did they know? It would happen. It would happen. And so we fast forward about 2,500 years of human history. We see another marker in this story of the curtain, Exodus chapter 26. Exodus chapter 26 another marker in the story of the curtain. After the exodus of Israel out of Egypt, God had rescued his people from slavery. God condescends to his people in order to dwell on earth with them. And he instructs Moses, as we pointed out earlier, to to build a tabernacle. And in that tabernacle, there would be a room called the most holy place or the holy of holies where God's presence would come to dwell. But then in Exodus 26, that presence of God would be veiled from his people because in the the tabernacle there between the holy place and the most holy place, God said to build a curtain where the presence of God would be separated from where the people and the priests would operate. Why, Why a divider? Why a curtain? Because of man's sin and God's holiness. The curtain separated the holiness of God from the sinfulness of man. And we have to ask this question, could that curtain ever be breached? Was it a permanent divider? Could it ever be crossed and the most holy place be entered by man? The answer is yes. The answer is yes, but only in the way that God prescribes only in the way that God prescribes. Jump ahead to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16. In this chapter, we're not going to read it all, but I want you to know where it is. 
this chapter, we read of a, 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 a day called the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. And as you read through this, you see that on the 10th day of the seventh month for Israel, and only on that day, 10th day, seventh month, once a year, only that day, he says the high priest could enter the most holy place to make atonement for the sins of the people. 10th day, seventh month. So earlier we said access was denied because of sin. Here, access is allowed, but it was authorized personnel only. It was authorized personnel only. No more, no others. Tenth day, seventh month, only the high priest, only on the day of atonement, wearing only the right clothes. As you read through Leviticus 16, you'll see this. Only wearing the right clothes, having washed in the right way, having done everything in a certain order, then and only then could one priest once a year enter the holy place, the most holy place. And this process that we see in Leviticus of blood and sacrifice and cleansing and atonement would continue in Israel for hundreds and hundreds of years. Access was allowed, but it was burdensome. It was tedious. It was limited. Yet we know what? The rest of the story is coming, isn't it? Even this sacrificial system of bulls and goats and lambs was always meant to do what? It was meant to paint a picture. Paint a picture of a much bigger reality that was coming. And that was what was coming is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the God-man. The Lamb of the God who was sent to take away the sins of the world. All those bulls and all those goats and all those lambs that have been sacrificed could not take away sin. We read that in Hebrews this morning could not take away sin. They were all meant as the picture forward to the person who could take away sins. And that's Christ. So that brings us back to this monumental day of Christ's death on Calvary in Luke chapter 23. Christ is there on the cross once again, and, and he yells out, it is finished. And he gives up the ghost. And it says at that moment, the curtain in the temple tore in two. What's the significance? Why did the curtain tear? What, what does that mean? What's the significance of Jesus's death in relation to the curtain in the temple? Well, just explain what the curtain meant, what it stood for, why it was there. Here's the connection between Jesus' death and the curtain of the temple. The curtain, remember, was a barrier between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. But Christ, when he dies on the cross for sins, he bridges the gap between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, and the barrier was no longer necessary. It's torn in two. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him and therefore then we can approach God. The divider is torn in two because access to God is granted through Jesus Christ. No divider necessary. No separation needed. We are made righteous through Christ made holy before God through Christ, and therefore we can come into God's presence. Ephesians 2.18, 
For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Ephesians 3.12, in Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Hebrews 10, verse 19, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Why? It all points back to this verse and you know it. John 14.6, Jesus said unto them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, but by me. We have access to God in one way through Christ. What sin had destroyed in the Garden of Eden, Jesus restores. And the access to God that sin denied is granted again through the death of Christ. You want to come to God? You have to go through Christ. Would you take your Bibles and go to our scripture reading from this morning, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. In Hebrews 10, 19, the writer here, looking back to the greatness of Christ's sacrifice, he says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest, Boldness to enter the holiest. What is the holiest place? What is the holiest place in all the world? What is the holiest place? It is this. It is wherever the presence of God is. The holiest place is wherever the presence of God is. So he says to us that we can have boldness to enter the holiest, in essence, to enter the presence of God. But it doesn't compute, does it? Because how can I, who, who, who is so evil and so corrupt, enter the presence of a God who is so far apart from sin and corruption? Something doesn't add up here. God is, as we've said several times, he is holy, holy, holy. How can I approach a holy, holy, holy God when I'm not even close, not even close to one holy? How do I get there? And he says, brethren, you have access to enter the holiest place by the blood of Jesus. That's how. That's how unholy, measly little old me can enter the presence of God Almighty. It's because of Christ. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, don't miss verse 20. He says, we have access to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. What he's saying here is that we go through the veil and into the presence of God. 
what is the veil according to the end of verse 20? It is the body of Christ, his flesh. Now, don't miss this. Just as the high priest, one time a year, the day of atonement, 10th day, 7th month, had to go through the veil in order to enter the presence of God, so we must go through Christ to enter the presence of God. That's the picture. Yet here's the beautiful thing. How often could the high priest go before the presence of God? One time, once a year. Who could go before the presence of God? One person, the high priest, one time, once a year. That's not true anymore. Not true anymore. We have access to God at any point. We can go before the throne of God to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4.16. You have access to God at any moment because of Christ. You don't have to wait for the priest. If you're in the fourth month, you got another three months you got to wait for him. He's about to go. No, you have access now before the throne room of God. We sang that song earlier, before the throne of God above. We have access to that throne, but only through Christ, as God has prescribed, only through Christ, no other way. I want to show you something here in Matthew 27, verse 51, and Mark 15, 38. You can choose whichever one you want to go to. Matthew 27, 51, or Mark 15, 38. They both mention something about the tearing of the curtain that Luke does not tell us. Luke says that the curtain tore in two. But Matthew and Mark both tell us something. Matthew 27, 51, and Mark 15, 38. Both tell us something that Luke doesn't. I'm going to Mark 15, 38 but they both say about the same thing. It says this, then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now Luke tells us that it tore in two. It does not tell us that it was top to bottom. Why do Matthew and Mark add in this one little seemingly insignificant detail that the curtain tore from top to bottom? Why is this important? Don't miss this. It is important because it shows us that God tore the curtain. God is the one who made the way of salvation. He's the one that opens the door. He's the one that grants access back to himself through Christ. We don't tear the curtain. We don't get to God through our own power. There's no pair of scissors big enough to tear that curtain. There's no chainsaw strong enough to get through that thing. God must tear the curtain for us. Our own measly attempts at tearing the curtain will not work. It's called a works-based salvation. And we saw in Philippians chapter 3, Paul called that what? Dung. He said it's worthless. It doesn't work. Access on our own will always be denied. But access is always granted through Christ. Titus 3 verse 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. When God tears the curtain, he declares, 
I have made a way of salvation. And anyone who will come may come through Christ, through the curtain. And I want to point out one more thing as we close, and that was this. The day that Jesus died on the cross, it was was Passover weekend. There was a lot of stuff going on in Jerusalem on that day. So the temple, because of Passover, the temple would have been a busy place. I want us to consider this for a moment. It makes me wonder this. How did the priests at the temple, because Jesus was being crucified just outside of Jerusalem, but there would have been activity there at the temple. Maybe even some sacrifices and things going on at that point. And it makes me wonder this. How did the priests at the temple react when they heard and when some of them even saw the curtain being torn? What was their reaction? You think about there was earthquake and there was darkness at the same time. It probably in some ways seemed like their world was crashing in on them. And then they hear this noise, or maybe even some of them see the curtain tearing. How did they respond? Did they rush quickly? Come on, guys, let's get back together. We got to get that curtain back up. Did they move quickly to restore the curtain? To put back the barrier between God and man? Were they even moved at all to consider the significance of Jesus and his sacrifice? but that's them. The bigger question is this, are you? Are you moved to consider the significance of Jesus and his sacrifice? Or when you hear that the sacrifice of Christ can bring you to God, do you rush to reconstruct the barrier? Do you want to maintain that barrier and and keep it nicely decorated? I need my distance I'm sinful, I like it. Put that curtain back up. Put that curtain back up. Or maybe is today the day of salvation. The day that you come to God through Jesus Christ. Is today the day that the barrier between you and God is removed by faith in Christ. I can't assume every person knows Christ as Savior and has trusted in him and his shed blood on the cross. So I ask this, would you come to Christ? Would you turn from your sin and turn to Christ for salvation? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray.